0: We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 8, that's page 309 of your Pew Bibles. If if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible home with you. Um, But page 309 uh, of your Pew Bibles, and uh, we are in the middle of what I think is the real climax of the Old Testament. Uh, We looked last time um, at the construction of the temple, and we want to take our time looking at the consecration of the temple. However, in order for us to really appreciate what is going on here, we, we need to kind of get a broader idea of some of the language that is here. And so we want to uh, look at verses 10 through 11, which is really the heart of chapter 8. Uh, what we'll do, Lord willing, really next week is return, look at chapter 8, verse 1, return to our verse-by-verse exposition. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's word. I want to read 1 Kings chapter 8, and verses 10 to 11. Of course, the temple has been built. Solomon has come to consecrate. The Ark of the Covenant has come in. We see this verse 10, when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask the same thing every time we gather that your spirit will move in such a way that we would be transformed by your word because we believe your word and we will live out your word. God, this is your work. So open our entire being, body and soul, and may I decrease so that you can increase for your kingdom and your glory. Name your son we pray. Amen. May you be seated. In January 2008, then-senator and candidate Barack Obama gave a speech as he was winding down the primary process to win the nomination for the Democrat Party, which eventually, of course, led him to become president. And he gave a speech, and here's a paragraph from that speech. Years from now, the future president said, you'll look back and you'll say that this was the moment. This was the place where, the, where America remembered what it means to hope. For many months, we've been teased, even derided, for talking about hope. But we always knew that hope is not blind optimism. It's not ignoring the enormity of the task ahead or the roadblocks that stand in our path. You and I may read that and you think, okay, that sounds like a political speech and you would be right. However, does anything sound off to you? I suspect not. Because believe it or not, if you study the history of presidents, they have a history of, of redefining the English language. Sometimes they just make words up. For example, Thomas Jefferson, in early 19th century, coined the word belittle. and He was in fact criticized for making up a word. President George W. Bush has a long history of made-up words. One of my favorites is, of course, "misunderestimates." That's so good. Oh. oh. <laughs> I mean, you have to have a Harvard education to come up with that, right? Misunder mis- uh, anyway, I'm not gonna do my impression. <laughs> but do you see the word that is off here? Let me see if I can highlight it for you. It is the word enormity. Now, you look at that word and you, because of the influence of the, of the evolution of language and whatnot, you, you see that as the future president then as meaning largeness, thats that we're not ignoring the largeness of the task ahead of us. However, that is not what enormity actually means. It's in the dictionary that meaning now is a secondary meaning. Its primary meaning is a shocking evil or an immoral act. So what he essentially said was, we are not ignoring the immoral act of the task ahead of us. Well, that takes on a whole different meaning, wouldn't you say? Now, you can imagine people who are snobs, you know, uh, language snobs are writing into the New York Times to complain. Of course, not the New York Times, their personal blog and Twitter, of course. The point we need to see here is, is not to pick on pres, presidents and candidates, but rather to see that language can be a rather fragile thing. When we go into a word and we have certain assumptions about the meaning of that word, we can actually rob that word of its meaning. And when we do it to the Bible, we're really on dangerous ground. I have found in, the, in, the, in my study of theology and the history of the church The mistakes we often make is when we assume the meaning of a word. Chances are, you read the Bible, there are words in there. You haven't really thought about what they mean, but you have an idea, and that's good enough for for, for your third grade Sunday school teacher, isn't it? For example, what does the word like holy mean? What does the word grace mean? really me. These are two words we use a million times in a Christian context. There's a third word we need to look at here today, the focus of our attention here. That is the word glory. When I was at Southern, uh, the joke that we said that if you ever were taking a test or a professor called you in class and you didn't know the answer, here's the answer you give to the glory of God. What's two plus two? you know, professor, it's all for the glory of God, right? And then we made a joke about that because we were always talking about the glory of God, but the problem is most of us don't really know what it means. And so in order for us to appreciate the consecration of the temple, we have to grasp the the meaning of the word. Again, notice that the priests come out of the holy place And a cloud fills the What in the world is that cloud? Well, we discover there in verse 11 that the cloud is the glory of God in the house of God. What does any of that mean? We can't understand the consecration of the temple without understanding the meaning of the word glory. So if you will indulge me, I want us to talk about that this morning. Three ideas that we need to look at. The first is the idea of essence. One of the challenges of talking about God, or if you ever study theology, and it's theology proper, is how do you describe the indescribable? How do you speak about the one who, who, who words are inadequate to, to describe? How, how do you portray with a verbal canvas the one whom no image can truly uh, depict, right? How do you do this? And this is an issue we see within the Bible itself. And one of the primary strategies that theologians, and I would say the Bible itself has, is not to talk about God per se, but to ascribe to him his attributes. So we talk about his love and his mercy. We talk about his providence, his sovereignty, his holiness, his justice, and his, he, he has creator and sustainer. It's usually what it is that we talk about. But the Bible does want us to understand not just things about God, but also who he is in his essence. Remember that when Moses came to the burning bush, he's sort of like, okay, I'm going to hang out with and redeem my people. When they ask, who talked to you in the bush, Moses? What's your name? Remember, the name is I am. It is the name to be. God is the divine is. Right. That's as good as we can get. In our, in our human languages. Well, the Bible does help us to do this. For example, we could talk about the word holy is, 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 is one word that we have here. The idea is, is, is it describes God's essence of purity. He is separate from his, his, his creation. God is holy. And then we can talk about glory. Glory is a word that draws our attention to the essence of God. Now, when we use the word glory, what it means uh, in its essence is twofold. First of all, the word, its etymology, means heavy. It means heavy. Now that may sound strange, but it does mean heavy. For example, when the priest Eli in 1 Samuel 4, remember that he he, he falls back in his chair? Why did he fall back in his chair? He was glorious, that's why he fell back in his chair, he's overweight. He broke his neck. That's the word used. It says he was a bit on the glorified side. That's what it says, right? (laughs) Right? Um in 2 Samuel 14, remember Absalom's hair is described as long and glorious. It's long and thick. It's heavy, right? It's got a weight. In fact, the text gives us the weight of his hair. You do with that whatever it is you want, right? But the word means heavy. Now, if you're sitting there saying to yourself, self, that makes absolutely no sense. Sure it does. When you were young and you were cool and and someone among your friends and someone said something profound, what what would you say? Dude, that was deep. Are you describing the process of digging a hole at that moment? No, the word deep carries with it an additional meaning. And so the word deep helps describe what it is you're trying to portray about the conversation you're having. So does the idea of heaviness. So in the Bible, what we see is that the word glory, in this context of heaven or heaviness, is rather uh, describes uh, uh, someone who has great honor, great possessions, great reputation. Abraham, for example, is described to be wealthy. He has great glory. His, his wealth is heavy. Or we can see that that reputation, David is worried about his honor, his glory among the nations. Or, for example, this is applied to God, in Isaiah 43, "Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory. His honor, his glory." So here we think of the idea of his reputation. God is holy. He is righteous. He is jealous. He is honorable. He is eternal, divine, omnipotent, good. He is glorious. Not only does glory uh, describe the essence of God as heavy or honorable, it also describes the meaning of bright. I suspect this isn't surprising to many of us. We, we, we use phrase like the Shekinah glory of God without even knowing what either one of those words means. But we understand it has the idea of brightness. For example, in Revelation 21, we see the city, that is the New Jerusalem, has no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it for God's glory gives it light. That's very clear what the meaning uh, is there. Or remember in Luke, in the birth of Jesus, remember that the angel of the Lord uh, appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Clearly, a reference to light and brightness of the light. No one saw you know, the, 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 the glory of God among the divine beings and, and thought, man, can someone turn a light on in here? No, it was bright. Associated with God's glory, Hebrews 1 it says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Radiance is the idea of brightness. Now, what we don't mean here is just to say, look, God in His essence is really bright, right? You need some like some real strong sunglasses and sunblock, not the Walmart kind, right? You need something that you can't even get on Amazon, right? You, that, that's what we mean by it. moving on. Again, it, it helps us grasp something about God. Here the idea, if we could use the word, would be something like, like beauty, awe, awesomeness. Right When he describes God's glory as brightness, I guess the closest thing we have is, you know, when you go to watch a long movie in the theaters and lights are out. If you ever go to the theater where, where you walk out and you immediately go outside and it's a bright, sunny day, right? It's two o'clock in the afternoon, no cloud out. That's as close as you and I can get to the glory of God in terms of brightness, But here we are awestruck, we are overwhelmed by God's majesty and splendor. Now, what the Bible does is it takes the essence of God, his glory, and and it attaches it to some of his roles. So we talk about the king of glory in Psalm 24, the God of glory in Psalm 29, the glory of Israel in 1 Samuel 15, the father of glory in Ephesians 1, and that God is glorious and awesome, Deuteronomy 28. So we see in, in his essence, in these various roles as king, as father, as savior, whatever, he is glorious. And this heaviness is what makes the sense of the temple so significant. God's glory came down. Too often we just read through that because we've told ourselves we have to read this passage and we don't really pause and consider what it is that's happening there. If you were standing there at the the magnificent temple of Solomon, that itself would leave you awestruck only to, this, to witness the presence of God coming down among his people, suddenly the temple is small in comparison. You wouldn't leave that moment saying, you know what, that was really cool. You would leave and say, and things are really heavy right now. Things are really glorious here. And so it is, we see the same thing as stated in Exodus 40, when God came down to be amongst people with the tabernacle, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Same language we see here in 1 Kings. Moses wasn't able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Same thing here. The priests are having to come out because God is coming in and you cannot be there with him. It is an all struck moment. God's glory is heavy. It is overwhelming. It is intense because it is the very essence of God. Notice we have not just essence, we have the idea of expression. One of the beautiful aspects of God's glory is not to use a theological language, not that is intrinsic, but is also extrinsic. That is to say, not only do we believe that God is glorious, but that God shares his glory. I think this is the cool part of it. God shares with us his glory. How does he do it? A few ways. First of all, he does it by means of uh, creation. He does it by means of creation. Have you ever wondered why our expanding universe is so massive? We have within our galaxy billions and billions and billions of stars, and we are just one of billions and billions and billions of, of galaxies. And this universe that we are in, creation itself, is expanding. The reason it is like that is not because of the aliens, the reason it's like that isn't because we, have, we might need to find another earth to escape too soon. Rather, we see through Scripture, God created to both demonstrate and to reflect his glory. We see this throughout the Bible. Psalm 19:1, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens, creation itself, it is as if it is singing the glory of God by reflecting the glory of God in creation. Isaiah 43, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory... Notice again that it is not just the cosmos, it's the creature. We are to reflect God's glory. That is why that the God of beauty creates beauty. Our understanding of beauty comes from creation, which is a reflection of God's glory. Creation of God reflects the glory of God. Secondly, judgment. God's glory is shared in judgment. It's striking to me as an American that we are always crying for justice, but we are shocked to discover God is a God of judgment and justice. And we would say he is glorious just, gloriously just. Isn't it good when evil is punished? Isn't it good when the righteous are rescued? Isn't it good when justice wins? Isn't it good that God's glory is manifest in the judgment of the wicked? Yeah, for he is more just than we are for he is gloriously just. And so when judgment is carried out, we are seeing God's glory shared among his people. We see this in Exodus 14 with Pharaoh, that God hardens Pharaoh's heart and I will get fl- glory over Pharaoh. He has hogged it all for himself for far too long. I'm gonna do the impossible so that the nations will know I am glorious and you are my people. Or consider Ezekiel 28 uh, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and I will manifest my glory in your midst. And they will know that I am the Lord, and I, when I execute judgments for her, I will manifest my holiness. Notice there the connection between glory and holy regarding the essence of God. It is shared by means of judgment regarding Sidon, but at its core is God's essence of glory. God is glorious in his judgment. Thirdly, God is glorious in redemption. Salvation is not an entitlement. It is a result of God's glorious grace being made known among sinners. You understand that if you have surrendered your life to Christ, you are a reflection of God's glory. I'm afraid you have not taken the time to meditate upon that. That's heavy. That's deep. You by coming to Christ, are a reflection of his glory. God is glorified when sinners repent. Think about that. We see this in Romans 9 when Paul says that, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, you and me, prepared for destructions in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? You see see what he did there? Judgment is an act of God sharing with us his, his, his glory. But he also chooses to share his glory by the salvation of sinners. Isn't that incredible? We are here right now because God has chosen to share his glory with the wicked, with sinners, with rebels, you and I. And that is true not just in our moment of redemption, but in the process of sanctification as we become more like Jesus, as we grow in holiness. For example, Jesus is saying, by this my Father is glorified. You bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. You see how God shares? When Christians act like Christians, God receives glory and it is a revelation of God's greater glory. Isn't that incredible? Well, one other thing. We've seen essence, we've seen expression. The third is experience. If God is not only glorious in his being, but shares his glory with his creation, then our response is to return to God glory that is already his. You see, so far what we've done is we said, okay, God is glory, glorious, God shares his glory. Now, what do we do with that? And the answer is we return to God what is already his. How do we do that two ways? First of all, we do it through our worship, our worship. Worship is to ascribe to God what is already his, which means you can measure what you believe by God by your worship. You struggle to worship because things are difficult or you're busy or it's inconvenient or whatever it is. It reflects your view of God is awfully small because your worship is small. But in those moments of crisis and heartache and difficulty, you are able to sing uh, uh, to the glory of God. It is a reflection that your God is awesome. He is honorable, he is heavy, he is bright, he is glorious. Our worship is a reflection of our theology. This is why the first commandment is so important. Idolatry is to glorify that which is not glorious. It is the chief of sins. The idols of America, whether we talk about food or sex or power, entertainment, money or influence, they are not glorious. God, in his essence and in his expression of his glory, he alone is glorious. Thus, he alone is worthy of our glory to extol upon him what he is. It is the moment when finite creatures acknowledge that God is glorious. We see this throughout the Bible. Consider the angels, for example. My favorite chapters in the Bible, Revelation 5. I looked, behold, John says, around the throne. Right, It's the lion-lamb imagery. The voice of many angels. Same with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Notice the context of their worship is Christ as lamb crucified. Or we can consider a Revelation 19:1. And this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. You see how the Bible struggles to, to, to help us to grasp the beauty of God. So at times it just throws all these adjectives out. One of which, the chief of which is glory. He who has salvation and glory and power associated with him. And if the angels will sing to the glory of God, surely we should. For we have experienced what the angels have not, and that is the redemption of our souls. We never have reason not to worship. Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Notice that the experience of glory is a, it leads to us responding to give glory. Psalm 66, 2, seeing the glory of his name, give to him glorious praise. And you can start in Psalm 1. You can go to Psalm 150. What are you going to find? Over and over again, let us praise the Lord for He is glorious. We give glory to the one who is glorious. Secondly, we glorify God not just through our worship, but by our walk. When we walk, when our walk does not match our uh, match our worship, we are living in sin. It's not really more complicated than that. But if we focus our if the focus of our worship is the resurrected Savior, then so will our lives be. We should glorify God in all that we do. This is very clear in scripture. Let me give you one verse. First Corinthians ten thirty one. So whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever it is that you do, do it all for God's glory. So when I was at Southern, this is what we meant by to the glory of God. Because what the school wanted us to see, that what should motivate us every single day for the rest of our lives is that God would be glorified in all that we are and all that we do. We want to extend back to him who he is, what he has done for us. This is the essence, not just of our worship, but of our walk. Our lives must be God-focused and not self-focused. I recognize that this is anti-American right now. The American creed is me. I shared this before years ago. I believe my wife and I were still in college. Um, The person of the year for Time Magazine, Do you remember what it was? You. On the cover of Time magazine was a miracle. You were the person of the year. And here comes the gospel claiming otherwise. The center of your life should not be your feelings, your emotions, your wants, your desires, your victim mentality, or your entitlements. The center of your life should be Christ crucified to the glory of God and nothing else. This is what we are called to be. Calvin was right when he said we never truly glory in God until we have utterly discarded our own glory. That is true. That is so true. Because by comparison, you and I are nothing. Nothing. But God is glorious and worthy of his glory. This applies to your place of employment, to your home, to your entertainment, to your relationships. Every word we use, every place we go, every deed we do. Let it all be to the glory of God. Last time we looked at the previous chapters, we highlighted John 1.14, that the word that is the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. You remember that the word dwelt in Greek means tabernacle? And in that single verse, we see the climax of the, the theology of presence, we said, that in Christ, God has come to dwell among his people. And not just dwell, but to procure for them salvation forever. That the word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. You remember the rest of John 1.14? John says that in Christ, we beheld his glory. In Christ, we see the glory of God in human flesh. And if that isn't enough to keep you awake at night, nothing is. We beheld the glory of God in Christ, the true and better tabernacle, the true and better Solomon, God in flesh, coming to rescue us. How can we not glorify him? Can we read just one more passage? Turn with me to Revelation 7. Revelation 7. The thing about Revelation is often we come to it and we think it's only about a timetable for the end times. And we, we can do the end-time stuff, too, but as its essence is to encourage a persecuted people at the brink of extinction, not to grow tired and weary, for the glorious God will triumph in the end. That's the point. That's the point. It's not about your calendar. It's not about checking the news to see who the Antichrist might be, right? And did we elect them president? The point is to see that at its worst, when the church is suffering, do not lose heart. Christ rules supreme as lion and lamb. And the response to that amid suffering is to glorify Christ risen from the dead. It's the point of revelation. In a single verse, we are told to worship God. So Revelation 7 gets to the heart of that, verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. We could spend weeks on that single verse. The imagery there is is significant. Notice peoples from the four corners of the earth uh, across ethnicity and races and, and genders and boundaries and geography together united in the kingdom of God. We are clothed in righteousness, white robes, and there is the lamb slammed for the foundation of the world who rules by the means of the gospel. Verse 10, And crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders, the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? and, And from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know who these cats are. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. That makes no sense unless it's apocalyptic. If you dip anything in blood or ketchup, for goodness sakes, it will not be white. You do not wash things in blood. But in apocalyptic literature makes complete sense, doesn't it? The contents of the worship here is Christ's triumph over the nations as he gathers the nations to himself by the means of the blood of Jesus, who now risen reigns. Therefore, verse 15, here's the song. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Does that make sense now in our discussion of glory? For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Notice language of presence. He will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that in a word glorious? Don't you feel compelled when you read that to give glory to the one alone who is worthy of it? Not just in the songs we sing, or when we gather in service, but as we live our lives, as we embrace the gospel, and we tell others about him. I don't know what brings you here this morning or why it is that you're even here. But I do compel you that if you have never embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, never seen the essence of God in glory, expressed and shared in the giving of salvation to sinners like you and me, and you experience that transformation that only the Lamb of God can, I beg of you to come and let us glorify God with you. Or maybe you're here and, and you, this is just part of routine. This is just part of going through the motions. I beg of you, will you not come and give glory to God for the rest of your life? The decisions you make, the words you choose, the places you go, will you not today surrender your life, discard utterly your own glory for the King who reigns supreme, risen from the dead? Will you give glory to God? Let's come to repentance as we pray. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for letting us to consider.